Winner of the very first Academy Award Best Picture 1927, Wings, starring Clara Bow, Charles Buddy Rogers, Richard Arlen, and Gary Cooper, appearing in a role that launched his career. Directed by one of Hollywood's legendary directors, William A. Wellman, Wings has been masterfully restored, including an all-new recording of the original soundtrack by J.S. Zemishnik and exciting surround sound from Academy Award winner Ben Bird and Skywalker Sound. Now the thrilling epic in the air is finally on Blu-ray and DVD. Setting the standard for exhilarating combat in World War I, Wings, the last great silent film. Coming 124-12 on Blu-ray and DVD. Hello and welcome to the Film and Water Podcast, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, Rob Kelly, and our pal Scott X is back. Hello, Scott. Hey, Rob. How are you? You know, as you introduced me, I was going to hold up a dialogue card um, in honor of our movie today, but I didn't think that effect would work probably quite as well on an audio podcast. I'd say you're getting the hang of it. Uh, yeah, we're here to talk about a silent film, and in, in, in this case, 1927's Wings, directed by William Wellman. It is the only movie up until, of course, The Artist in 2012 or 2011 or whatever, depending, to win uh, an Oscar for Best Picture that was a silent film. Back then it was called Best Production, but uh, this movie holds that distinction. Now, there's, there's a lot to say about this movie, but I, I want to sort of start off with, with a confession, Scott, is because I really enjoyed your last appearance on the show when we talked about Lincoln. And I asked mm-hmm. you, thank you. Uh, yeah, it was great. And I asked you, you know, like, what movies would you like to cover? And you mentioned Wings, and I was like, I was like, huh, like, okay. Well, you know, I have always had trouble with this with silent movies. It's the only genre that I have. Even when I worked back at the video store, and I was I was renting everything I could get my my hands on. Silent films, I just I, for some reason I have the toughest time like holding my focus on them. And maybe it is because, you know, they're silent, it just doesn't have that audio component, or there's something about the style, of course, making a movie when it's silent that is so different that it just, I don't know, I could never get get into them. But I was like, well, we haven't done a silent film yet on Film and Water, so I thought, well, let's, let's, let me give that a try. So I, I get the movie from the head at the library, and I mm-hmm. look it up, and it's two and a half hours. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like... Oh boy! <laughs> you know? are in for a treat, Rob. Oh boy! <laughs> I mean, I'm a silent, a, uh, no silent. dialogue treat. Yeah. Oh boy! But I persevered because I was like, you know what? I really, again, I, this was a film that you specifically mentioned, and I was like, all right, Scott's, you know, he's really interested in this movie, and I, I like to uh, have a movie on that my guest is excited to talk about. So I persevered. I watched this movie. This is a great movie. It's a fantastic movie. I mean, this is a great movie, and we'll get into it later on, but this movie, I think silent movies are the perfect antidote for the iPhone era, where everybody cannot hold their attention for themselves more than 10 minutes. You know, it's so funny. My, my experience with this movie was similar to yours. Um, not that I didn't want to watch silent movies. When I first saw this, I w- I've been trying to rack my brain and figure out when it was. I think it was the early 90s. I was home from um, home from on a college break of some sort, and I was laying on the couch, and this movie came on. I think it was shortly after they had sort of rediscovered a print of it and done a restoration. I'm like, oh, a silent movie? What? Why are you? Why, why are they wasting airtime on this? You know, and I found I couldn't break myself away from the movie, which to me, again, tells me the strength of this movie. There was no dialogue, but I was just enraptured by the movie. Yeah, it's exciting. I mentioned it was directed by William Wellman, and it's a it's a, a World War One drama. I mean, that's basically yeah. what it's about. It's about uh, two young men that go off to war. They're played by Charles Rogers and Richard Arnold. The plot is basically, it's a story of love and war. Jack Powell, Charles Rogers, and David Armstrong, Richard Arnold, are two young men living in the same small American town, both vying for the attentions of pretty Sylvia Lewis, Jobina Ralston. Jack uh, fails to realize that the girl next door, Mary Preston, played by the legendary Clara Bow, is desperately in love with him. Both men enlist to become combat pilots in the air service. They leave for training camp, Jack mistakenly believing Sylvia prefers him. In training, they meet a fellow cadet named White, Gary Cooper, who dies soon after in an accident. Over the course of their time together, the two become good friends. They ship off to France to fight the Germans. Meanwhile, Mary joins the war effort as an ambulance driver. Uh, there's, I mean, you know, there's way more to it than that, but that is the basic setup of this film. And like I said, I, I really, first of all, the, 
the filmmaking on, on Wellman's part is just unbelievable. And I, I saw this quote, I forget who said it, uh, but I saw it many years ago where they said that pretty much any movie before King Kong, before the invention of all the special effects techniques, every movie is basically a documentary because they couldn't mm. fake it. They couldn't fit right. these things. They just had to right. do it. You know, they just yeah. had to find it. There's a scene where um, Richard Arlen, David Armstrong, pilots a, his plane into a house. And they yeah. just do it. They just have to do it. Yeah. because they, they run into a house. Yeah, they just fly a plane into a house because there were no miniatures back then. You just had to do it. And so um, it, this I, – I don't even know where to begin with this movie. I mean, it's, it is just extraordinary. There's a shot early on of um, Sylvia and Jack on a swing. Yep. As they're t- talking, uh, saying sweet nothings. Uh, well, presumably we can't hear it, of course. Uh, <laughs> saying sweet nothings to one another. And the swing is going back and forth. And the camera is following them. You know, the camera must have been planted at the end of the swing because we watch the swing as it goes up and goes down. And in the background, we see another character arrive in a car. And, of course, as the swing is moving in and out of the frame, we see we sometimes see the guy... Then he's gone. Then he's closer. Then he's back again. And you realize this is all one big shot. This is somebody driving up in the background, walking to the foreground as the actors are doing their dialogue, as the swing is going back and forth. And this is all just done in camera. It's just startling. And, 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 and you know, this is a, this the feats in this movie from a technical spec perspective are just staggering. And as we go, I know we'll talk a lot about more than how they invented techniques specifically for this movie that are just ubiquitous now. They're used all the time, even today. And that particular scene I found interesting, too, because if you think of the hardware they had then, as that, that swing was going forward, backward, like you said, that's, that, that's the only way they could have done it because the actors stayed in focus. The cameras, they didn't have multi-focus cameras like that. And as, as uh, Jack came in from the back, he came into focus. And then thematically, right away, that sets up the story, this love triangle between the three. So we see the two people sitting in the swing, him coming from behind. So we have a technical, technically incredible shot as well as a thematically important shot, all condensed in this nice little package. Yeah, it really is. I mean, William Wellman uh, was—he had served in World War One as a pilot, so this was like very personal to him. This was a story that he wanted—he wanted to tell. And exi- he, he was a—he was a—he was one—he was designated a flying ace um, in World War One. You know, he—he he understood that, and, and we can talk a little bit about that in the future. But again, how thematically, I think that became really important. His experience—he lived much of the action in this movie. Yeah, it's 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 kind of remarkable in that the film is first of all tonally, uh, it 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 combines lots of different things that you would think wouldn't mm-hmm. work because I mean there's a sequence where um, uh, Jack uh, or yeah Jack gets drunk on champagne right. and there's these bubbles that start coming out. He starts imagining these bubbles as they're coming up out of the champagne glass, and then there's a sequence where he's watching a. A musician play, and he's imagining bubbles coming out of their their instruments, and like we see these animated bubbles right. coming out, and we hear this pop because there is some sound. There's there's sound effects, and there of course there's music, um, but we hear like the the popping bubbles, like it's a cartoon, and yet this film also features sequence of people being garroted on on, right. on the battlefield, <laughs> right. and we see it up close. Right. Somebody just get jabbed and repeatedly gets up. So it's it's kind of it's. If you read the title cards, it seems to regard war as this sort of amazing adventure that any man would want to get into. It's like, I was going to put hair on your chest. Go out to war. Yeah. And in the initial parts, I was a little skeptical. I'm like, well, I'm, I'm always a little shaky about any movie that regards war as a glorious adventure that any young boy would want to get involved in. But then later on, it does present, boy howdy does it, the grim realities of what it's like to be – so it's, it's weird in that Wellman is sort of celebrating – being part of war, but also not shying away from the dirt, the ugliness, and the grit of it. Yeah, and, and you know that I think that was very much true of his life. Um, there's a whole bunch of his letters that he wrote home when he was uh, in World War One that he wrote to his mother. His mother had preserved them, and and his letters express exactly what you said. He went over there for adventure. He went to join the ambulance corps, and he got over there. Well, they were looked down upon, so he decided to be a pilot. So he was going to train to be a pilot. And his letters, as he goes along, he says, "I don't think people at home understand what this means. What is happening here?" And he keeps going about that. And he was going looking for adventure, and what he found 
um, with something different. And again, thematically, I think that plays out through this whole movie, and that's the character of Jack. Thematically, he's looking for adventure. He's looking for the great prize. He wants the girl. He wants the accolades. And what he finds is that war is hard and dirty and gritty and people die and people sacrifice. In the end, it's the relationships that develop through this camaraderie and shared experience that's the important thing, not the war, so to speak, itself. Yeah, it's. I mean, not look, not that any war, any war is something that you want to be involved in or that there's any right. war that's better than others. But uh, from what I understand of World War One, of all the wars that we've ever fought in, we, meaning the United States, has ever fought in, World War One was sort of the most um, uh, grotesque, I guess I would yeah. say, because it was the beginning of the mechanized age where we could right. create these machines that were built to just mow people down with nary a thought and yet we still were the tactic was still basically just throw a bunch of humans at at them that would that Absolutely. that's the goal you know and that's with this trench warfare Pe- thousands of men would die to gain five feet and then a day later they'd lose it they'd it lose was, it again you know and the trenches are just filled with blood and then the, this the battle sequences i mean i thought the the human interest stuff the stuff involving uh, Clara, Bo- Mary Preston, played by Clara Bow, who is is funny. She's kind of the good girl here, and yet she was mm-hmm. the sex pot. That was her right. persona. Was the, and yeah, the I, it girl, the it girl, right? And I I read a thing about that. Apparently, when she got the costumes for this film, she she was so horrified that they were so kind of boring that she like tore the the uh, yeah. the chest part out of all of them because she wanted. I to read that too. Yeah, <laughs> um, but I mean, so I mean, you the setup is all that stuff in the beginning, which is it's like the lyrics to "Love Stinks" because it's like she loves her and he loves him and. She she loves somebody else. You know, it's like <laughs> right. no, nobody's lining up the way it's supposed to. But the the whole stuff in the middle of the film where we see um, Jack and David at war. I mean, again, even the stuff in the training camp where they meet Gary Cooper's character. Gary Cooper is – he looked like Gary Cooper. You know, as you could tell, right. this guy's going to be a star. And yet this is a guy who's all sort of ready to fight for war. And then he dies in the very next scene due to a dumb accident. And that and that was that was very much Wellman's experience. He he in training, he would write home and say that that people died in training. I mean, think aviation was on the was brand new back yeah. then, much yeah. less to be used in warfare. And the training that it took to get these guys ready to fly the planes of that time, which was basically a motorized kite, it was all canvas and baling wire and balsa wood, and they're flying around up there. And that was something that he wanted to emphasize again was that. You know, people training was hard. It wasn't just the war; it was training. And he he actually thought that role, um, the Captain White role or Cadet White, excuse me, um, was one of the most important in the movie because it a lot of that movie turned on that. These guys were getting their training; they had gotten through training. They were all excited to go off, and basically their first day there, their their bunkmate gets killed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Gary I- Cooper. That was a whole interesting story with him too. Was he, that was his only? What it was a minute and a half, probably in the movie, and yeah. he was a he was an unknown at that time. Yep. And Wellman had taken a liking to him, and, to him, and, and and Cooper was down on his luck. He had no money, he had nothing. So Wellman, they were down in San Antonio filming. Wellman kept him on for like months and months, and never shot his scene. Well, he was being paid the whole time. <laughs> I never so heard that. Wellman, Wellman was trying to help the guy out, and here he was getting paid the whole time, and he said the other thing was if, if we kept him away from Hollywood on location longer, they'd think he was a big deal. And sure enough, this movie made him a star. The next picture he was in, he was the lead actor after having a minute-and-a-half role in Wings. He was the lead, and Wellman directed that picture, actually. Too. Which one was that? That's... Uh... Oh, I can't think of it. It was, it was, a, it was a, they, they billed it as the sequel to Wings, which it wasn't, but it was, uh, I can't think of the name of, uh, it, it, uh, I can't, I can't think of the name of it okay. at all. It says here his next film was The Last Outlaw, but that's obviously it, not the sequel to Wings, so he did No, 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 there, there was another picture in there, and I should, maybe it wasn't his next picture, but his next big film was the one Wellman directed. And they they, they, they went on together to do a bunch of movies together. They did yeah. Jess together, and uh, and Wellman, of course, did a lot of other great movies, but he did Bo Jess with Gary Cooper. So clearly, like they, you know, he knew what he had there with, uh, with right. Gary Cooper for Pete. Well, he and Wellman said that right from the start. He said um, there there are things that you can't you can't teach, you know. And he he talked about that Gary Cooper just had that. You, you couldn't teach it. 
And he, he was talking about, he, he recounted later how after that, um, after that was done, the, the, the filming of that was done, Gary Cooper came to his hotel room and said, I, I'd like to do that again, Mr. Wellman. <laughs> and and it was, well, he says, well, why? You know, he says, well, I, I wasn't quite right. And he knew, I kind of picked my nose in one part. And he, Wellman said, stop right there. You keep picking your nose, and you'll pick your way all the way to stardom. Right, Because right, he, had, right. he had this natural approach to how he delivered things, and it was, it was real. And that was one of the things um, that he talked about. Um, there was a transition in the film at this time, kind of moving away from this really over-melodramatic, early silent film, theatrical-based, to more of a realistic portrayal of things. And, and Gary Cooper, just he had it. <laughs> I don't. No doubt about it. I don't think I've had a chance to do a Gary Cooper film on the show yet, and so I don't know if I've told the story whether I would have had the chance to. But I, I will hear because it makes me think of Gary Cooper. I read in a book once uh, about about Orson Welles where he talked about uh, Gary Cooper, and he said when he first met Gary Cooper, he got invited to um, a set that Gary Cooper was was starring in, like what's a movie Cooper was starring in, and he was just watching Cooper perform. And he was like, "My God, this guy's awful. He's just nothing. He's just a, he's just a blank. This he's, this is terrible." And he told the director that and he was like, "Get this guy is." And the guy said, "Orson, watch the footage." And so they watched the rushes, yeah. and he went, "Holy crap, this guy's a movie star." And he said there was yeah. just something about that when you saw him in real life. It didn't translate, but then when you saw him in the context of a movie, he just filled the space. He just became yeah. a movie star, and Wells was was enough of a enough of a of a, of a man to say, "All right, yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, this guy this yeah. guy's got the goods." <laughs> and that's that's how Wellman described it. He he said Wellman. This is a quote from Wellman. He said he has an indescribable thing called motion picture personality. <laughs> that's that's how he said it. Just exactly what you said. He said, "I don't know how what it is. You just have it or you don't." He has it. It is. Having said this, this movie is just. I, I as I watched this, I watched it twice actually, and and mm. I enjoyed it even more the second time because as you, as it unf, as it uns, unspools, it sort of like keeps hitting you with things that are, are more and more surprising. I mean, there's this whole right. sequence at the uh, at the the, uh, the not the draft board, but like the the. The, the office, the army office, where they, right. where everybody shows up to volunteer. They're doing their exams. They're doing exams. Pre, I'm sorry. Yeah, the medical. Exam. Yeah, the medical physical exam. exam. Yeah, the physical exam. First of all, there's nudity. Uh, yep. There's a bunch of naked men in the back room. We see the door swing open, and we see these guys standing there to get their physicals, and we see guys rear ends, which is yep. again startling for 1927. And you have to remember, of course, this is. This is pre the Hollywood Code, yep, and so you could do stuff like that. And it was only after the Hayes Code those spoil sports got in and said you can't do any of that stuff. And then there's this whole other character uh, named Herman Schwimpf, played by <laughs> L. L. Brendel, who is Dutch, and the draft board doesn't want him. You know, they're like, oh, I, you know, in fact, the guy at the the, the serviceman, the sergeant, says something like, you know, if I had my way, I'd put every one of you in in jail because he's assuming right. that because he's foreign. That he yeah. can't be trusted. And, of course, uh, Herman Schwimpf has this uh, American flag tattoo on his bicep, which when he flexes, it, it, it waves a little like, you know, like, it, like it's a flag. And that, that gets him through a lot of uh, scrapes because it proves that he's a real American. But just that, too, the idea that, in, you know, here's a guy wanting to volunteer for his country, and yet his country is saying, no, we don't trust you. I mean, it's – talk about relevant. Well, when it was funny too, and when you read that, there was the sergeant there when he when he came in when he was signing in. He again said, "Herman Schwimp, you know what? Yeah. You're in this man's fighting army." Well, then he said, "Well, I'll fight as well as you, Irisher." Was, was what he said. So again, you have all this strange underlying underlying um, nationalistic issues that were probably very prevalent in, in the in the certainly during World War One. But in the end, they need to understand, hey, we're, we're all coming together here, and <laughs> I'm dying next to you, so to speak. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, it said, it said all the – and the battle sequences in this film are uh, really beautifully staged. I mean there's, there's an amazing sequence of um, some Germans uh, at a uh, foxhole firing mm -hmm. at people and a tank – runs over the foxhole and we see a big close-up of the german getting crushed yeah. under the treads of the tank and again i mean i know that they obviously they faked it they didn't literally kill the guy but man it sure does look like it i mean it's it's really remarkable the, the the there's the flying scenes and the battle scenes i mean there's two different sequences of uh you know armed combat on the ground and then there's of course all the flying stuff involving uh, Jack and David, and they're fighting the, the the Germans and stuff. And again, all that stuff is 
beautifully shot because you know, it's all real. They're all up there really doing this stuff. You know that, and that was one of the crazy things. For two months, they were they were. I'm going to tell one little anecdote, then we'll get into where I was going with this. But they talked about they were in San Antonio. Wellman, and I think he probably exaggerated a little bit, said he knows they were there nine months because at the hotel that they stayed, all, right. um, all the all the elevator operators were women, and they all ended up pregnant because of all the movie companies. There was another movie being filmed at the same time, and then they re- then replaced the. Um, the elevator attendants with old men. It kind of tells you this Wild West movie type thing. Um, but but the part that he talked about, the reason they were there so long was because Wellman, um, the first two months worth of footage they filmed, he threw out and said, it's, it's worthless. It's not real. It's not real enough. So they went back and they redid how they were shooting all these things. And of course, the studio obviously was getting irate with him because they were they were basically hemorrhaging money. He would, he would sit there for days and days and days and weeks on end, and he would never shoot anything. Well, the reason he didn't shoot these aerial scenes was he didn't want a clear blue sky. He said, well, if we just shoot on a, on a clear blue sky, it's going to look ugly. Mm-hmm. He said, it's just going to look ugly. It's going to look like flies. He was waiting for a day where there was sunlight with clouds. And he said the clouds, not only does it look better, but it gives perspective relative to the planes. So the speed of the plane, right, right. it gives something to contrast against. And, and how and, and that certainly turned out. So they, the other things they did, they were trying to get these cameras to work. How do you film? They had guys flying in a, in a film plane and then the picture plane, but they couldn't get too close because they could see the stunt pilots were in there and how to film these appropriately. Well, after this two months, they said, screw this. This has all got to change. This, this isn't going to work. How are we going to figure this out? So they made, they made several decisions. Um, they decided the camera mounts would, would all be, have to be created and fastened to the fuselage of the plane. They built a bunch of platforms as high as 100 feet tall to photograph low-flying aircraft. Um, they had a bunch of camera operators that would film all the aerial sequences, and there was going to be no more trick, trickery in the filming. The actors would fly. Oh. So Rogers and Arlen were—they were flying those planes. They had to be trained to learn to fly, and it was basically they had—they had actual instructors. They got a few hours of training, and those guys were up there flying the planes. And then what they would do is they'd put a safety pilot in a second cockpit behind them. They had like high headrests, and they would cleverly hide them, um, and then they would like land the plane and take off. But the other the, the actors were actually flying the planes. And they mounted those cameras right in front of them. So when you see, and you see those backgrounds behind them, that's the real backgrounds. They're really flying. And those are the shots they're getting. It's incredible. Yeah, it really is. It's, it, it, I, it, it totally pioneered that stuff. There's a scene in there that one of the stunt pilots, Rob, you may remember this one. This one, again, is a sort of gory. He was a German pilot. And he got shot. And all of a sudden, this blood comes out of his mouth. Mm-hmm. And the, and the the off pictures show his plane spiraling toward the ground. Well, then they show a close and cut to close to him, and you can see him spiraling. He is actually diving into a spiral toward the ground. That he held that spiral, held that spiral, and then pulled out at the last minute. And then he landed the plane, and they all thought he was going to die. They thought the stunt pilot was going to die during that scene because it was so realistic. He he took it right to the end, and you can, like I said, you can see in the camera that's mounted ahead of him the spiraling behind him it's crazy it's yeah it really is remarkable the risks these guys took and again they didn't really it's they didn't really know any better you know it's like well this is what we have to sort of do and yep. one of the other things I, I do like about it is they set up that uh, jack powell is kind of more the boy next door and david armstrong is the rich guy right he's the rich kid and you would think that they would maybe present the rich kid as the guy who is Sort of the the dummy, the one who right, wide eyed goes off to war. But yeah. no, he's actually more grounded. It's, Absolutely. it's it's Jack is the one who's kind of like you know suck him a G, let's go to war, and he's kind of wide eyed. And I mean, he thinks that uh, Sylvia is in love with him, yeah. uh, and she's not. She's interested, and in, again, she's interested in David, but he doesn't know that. And there's this pendant that he has that has a picture in it, and, and she's she can't bring herself to tell him that he misunderstands because he knows he's going to go off to war. But I like, there's a whole great sequence with um, with David where he talks to his parents uh, about going off to war. And they're, of course, you know, crestfallen because they don't want their son to go off to war. And there was a, a funny note, the, the actor that plays uh, David's father, uh, Henry Walthall, I believe is how you pronounce it. In this movie, he looks like one of those presidents from like you know, like between yeah. Jefferson and Lincoln, you know, he's like Zachary Taylor, like one of those he, he guys. Sort, he sort of has one of the, sort of has a little bit of that Scooby-Doo villain hair yeah. kind of go too with that Absolutely. white yeah. hair. Kinda. But I mean, I, I liked that the, um, 
the idea that just because he's like they don't set up the rich people automatically as like they're terrible or whatever. No, they love their son and he's he's a decent guy. You know, David Armstrong's not a bad guy. Yes, he happens to be kind of the you know the wealthy scion of this family, and he's kind of a big deal in this small town. But I I, I like that he was a rounded person. It wasn't like you know, oh, Jack's the one that we like and we follow and David's kind of the heel. No, they, they both have their, their moments. I like that a lot. Again, for a film that has no dialogue other than the occasional card with some a sentence or two on it, uh, there's a lot of subtlety. You know, you don't think of silent films, at least I don't, as like particularly subtle because, of course, everybody has to gesticulate really hard right. with their faces. But there's a lot of subtle little character beats in this. And, and again, it was one of the things that I came away really impressed by. Yeah, and I think that's a testament to to the production of the film and the actors and their passion for what they were doing, because you're absolutely right. I, I always think the same thing. It's very hard to be subtle. We use dialogue, I think, to give nuance and to share, but they, but that wasn't the case. And as you said, you know, um, Richard Arlen's character, David, being the rich guy, you would think he would be the one. He was actually, to me, a much more sympathetic and likable character. Jack was an a-hole. Through the, <laughs> the first whole part of the movie, I thought, God, this guy... He just doesn't have a clue. He doesn't get it. He's sort of right. They're they're doing the calisthenics, and he's purposely smashing David's hat with his foot just to be a jerk to him. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's just he's doing all this, and again, he's he's. I think that that's kind of that that idea of stupid youth, where they just don't really have a clue. They don't have life experience, and certainly by the end, um, Jack really changes. He really makes a change from his opening scenes to the very last scenes with him in it. There's a monumental change there in his character. And again, that's that's sort of that they go off to war. And I think that's part of what they were trying to say is we have David, who's the rich guy, Jack, who is the not rich guy, regular guy. They go off to war and that's that's an equalizer. Everybody's the same out there. Everyone has the same chance of dying. Everyone has the same chance of coming home. Yeah, it's it's an equalizer. I think there's a quote from Francois Truffaut. I'm not. I could be getting that wrong, but the quote is basically that this. It was a, by from a film director who said that he thought uh, you could not make an anti-war movie that shows battle scenes because all battle scenes look exciting, and therefore it's not anti-war if you make it look exciting because it makes it look like it's something you'd you'd want to be participate in, and so therefore you can't make an anti-war film. I don't know if I believe that i mean i've seen movies like platoon certainly doesn't look like anything i'd want to mm-hmm. be involved in but there's scenes here that don't look romantic or i mean there's right. there's a scene where there's like a a doughboy like a random doughboy who's just sitting on the ground and yeah. he gets hit with a piece of shrapnel and just kills over dead and while he's killed over he rolls onto the ground and a bunch of other soldiers are in a formation and they just march by the body like they don't yeah. nobody stops to look at him nobody stops to check on him i mean he's dead we know he's dead but they don't necessarily know that and with one exception with one except exception the one guy, a cigarette yeah. falls out of his mouth and the guy puts his boot on the cigarette puts out the cigarette and then walks on yeah. kind of like that the I, he's he's snuffed out Kind yeah. of a thing, and you're like, you know, that doesn't look like anything I'd want to participate in. You know, yeah. I mean, it doesn't I mean, one of the things I liked about the the, the battle scenes in these movies, both get yeah, the aerials, which you talked about, and, and then the stuff on the ground, is that you don't ever really get a sense of the front line because it just seems like a mad mix. You know, there, right. there's no dis, there's no discernible Chaos. like those are the bad guys over there, the good guys are over here. Oh, okay, here are the bad. You know, it's not like Game of Thrones where it's two armies of people on the left-hand side and the right-hand side smashing into each other in the center. This is just all over the place, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's a whole sequence of, again, the guy, the, the German and the uh, the foxhole just mowing people down, and these poor guys are like, coming over a hill, and they don't even realize it until it's too late because they're I, they're crawling up, and then they all just fall, and then the next wave comes up and gets hit too, and you're like, this is just, it's just madness. It's just utter madness. Well, you know, it's so funny because this movie, too, that was one of the knocks why they didn't know if they wanted to produce it in the first place. They they thought, well, this is too much excitement in here. There was, there was people that said, well, you know, people go to the movies to relax and get away from it. And, and you know, this might wake somebody up if they fall asleep during the movie. 
that was one of the quotes that one of the, the producers, the high studio had said, because people like to sleep at the movies then, apparently. I, I don't know. And that this, they may not be able to get away from it. The second part was they thought that war had been box office poison earlier. So they thought, ah, are we really ready for a war movie? Well, they kind of thought they were. So then they went and they thought, this movie is going to cost a ton. So they want, went to say, how are we going to get financing? It was going to be too costly. And the, the studio gave this picture an absolute definitive no at the beginning. So um, Sanders, uh, John Monk Sanders, who was the the, uh, writer, said, well, maybe we can go to the government and get some support from them. Um, So they went to the government, and the government ended up agreeing to do this with certain stipulations. They would support the movie. And so so when I always think about this, this, I don't you could certainly perceive this as being an anti there's anti-war aspects of the film, but it was not an anti-war movie. And I don't think that's the message they were trying to send or the military would not have been supporting it. Certainly. But it, it sure, it gave a very even handed look at war, meaning we're not going to call sugarcoat this for you. This is realism and what it, what it looks like. So, you know, I, Robin, I don't know, I don't know if, if you looked up this too, but they said the budget for this movie was $2 million dollars. At the time, they said it might have been a little bit more, but the government actually contributed in man, in man service, um, and you know machines and all that. Sixteen million dollars. Holy! In 1927, wow. and they said if you adjusted that, this is if you take into account all that, which of course wasn't on the studio books. The government put this in. That that was probably still would be the most expensive movie ever made. Oh they had at one time with those battle scenes you mentioned, they had up to 3,500 military personnel out there, actual military personnel as the extras doing those. There's no 15 guys in CGI filling in background men. There was 3,500 people sometimes on the set doing those scenes. That's I did not know. I did not see that as part of the trivia of stuff. That is startling. Yeah. That is yeah, oh it's my incredible. God. Yeah, and the, 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 imagine the confidence you have to have to be – first of all, be any film director, but then to be able to command that level of a production, oh. that has just got to be beyond anything, you know, just to know that you can be – you have to direct all this literally, you know, go over here, go do this, go do that. And then it's – again, and Wellman – Geez, you know, I mean, he was great with the giant operatic war stuff, but then he was also great at the character stuff because, I mean, about halfway through the film, uh, we see Jack Powell go to Paris uh, for, right. for for like leave. I love the whole. I love that it's the intermission and and it's the um, you know it's like we're gonna go on va- we're gonna go on leave, and of course that means Paris, you know, gay Paris. Right, exactly. we, all, we all know that's that, where everybody went. Yeah, yeah. we know that that's that shorthand for party. And and uh, right. I the, the, you mentioned earlier uh, about you know techniques in this film still used to this day mm-hmm. well that is absolutely true there is a shot in this film a tracking shot uh in, during a at, at a cafe where the camera zooms over and through a series of tables with couples on either side and at, the camera manages to come from high up low down and then zip over these tables all in a row and we see the you know the person on the left fades left fades off to the screen on the left person on the right fades off to the right and it shoots over i think five or six sets of people all yeah. but they're all doing their own bits of business including a lesbian couple which was <laughs> in, asto- again astonishing to see in a, in a 1927 movie and then it ends with uh, Jack Powell getting some champagne poured in his glass and the waiter comes over and pours it right at the moment the camera gets up to jack's table it is an extraordinary shot i mean it is beautiful to look at and ryan johnson cribs it for the last jedi (laughs) yep and and it's been it's been in other movies too that same that exact same thing and that that was you know there there are a number I, i have somewhere in my notes here all the things that i thought were firsts in this movie and that's one of them that was the first what they call a dolly shot that was the first continuous dolly shot in motion picture history was right there it had never been done wellman decided to say well you know what it would be really neat if we could do this sort of in a continuous shot and find a way to zip across their heads and do that so they invented it they built a, a dolly track kind of above a platform above the actors and they dropped the camera down and then they just ran it on the dolly right down through the middle of all these people the cameraman was a guy by the name of burton steen he was also the one that had um photographed wellman said he fo- he did the, the actual operating the camera for 90 percent of the aerial battles 
and, and Bert and Steen, I don't want to touch this because it's weird. They had another dolly shot in this movie, and I don't, I, I don't know if it actually made it in the movie. Wellman talked about later how they were, he wanted to do another dolly shot with uh, um, Jack's character and Mary Preston's character walking down this sidewalk and have a long shot as they walk down this row of trees. Well, as they were shooting the shot, um, Wellman was standing behind Steen on this platform as they were rolling on. He had the camera. All of a sudden, Steen fell backward. And Wellman caught him before he, before he fell off the the dolly, but but Steen had his hand on the on the panhandle of the camera, and it went up toward the sky and shot. Well, Steen had a heart attack and ended up dying, like there. Wow. But but the picture he said the most beautifully photographed scene that Steen had ever done was of this sky, and he said it absolutely looked heavenly, hmm. and it was sort of this tribute he was giving this tribute to this guy who he said I I don't know what I would have done without Steen in this movie operating these special camera that he had that had gears on the head so it could adjust to the wobbling of planes and all this kind of stuff. I'm amazed. It was, it was these, crazy. Those guys that you hear about, there's a um, amazing, I, I mentioned it again, there's a King Kong, there's an amazing documentary on the King Kong DVD, which is all about the special effects they built, like the, the mat shots and the, yeah. and like the, the combination that these guys had to be of artists and engineers Absolutely. It's startling because you had to be able to have the creative idea to, to, to come up with that shot, you know, to say, well, wait a minute, you know, maybe we can put the camera and zip it through these five sets of couples, which gives you a whole mise-en-scene thing, you know, right. which tells you and the what, variety of life, the variety, yeah, the variety of life, of life going on, on in this on Paris display, cafe. Yeah. All but, people came and blended into this place. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody's just go to gone doing their thing. But then you also yep. had to have the physical engineering chops. To Absolutely. build the thing that's going to make it do it, and it's it gives a startling. And so later on, uh, Mary uh, Mary uh, Mary Preston takes Jack in back to his room because he gets drunk. And and, and uh, you should note that part of they because this big battle is going on, they have orders now that all leaves have to end, and right. they have to go. So they all have to go back, or they'll be court-martialed and arrested by the military police. Right, right, right. And uh, he gets drunk, and she uh, actually uh, takes her uniform off. And we see her bare-chested for a moment. Again, incredibly startling for a 1927 movie. And then that's when these two other guys come in, these two other soldiers come in, and they see her, and they assume that she's like a lady of the evening, and they don't buy the fact that she's an ambulance driver, and she gets shipped back home. That's the end of her story in this film, because they assume. And I love the whole, like when the two guys come in. First of all, I love how the one guy is like six foot five, and the other guy's like five foot two. They (laughs) look like Mutt and Jeff. And they're both like leering at her. You know, they're yeah. both kind of like, oh, and then they have to turn their backs. You know, it's like about face. We have to, get, yeah. she puts her clothes back on. But I mean, the, the whole mistaken identity thing or whatever. But like, it, it's, again, the movie keeps hitting you with stuff that I just did not expect to see in a 1927 silent film. I just no, did not. No, and, and, you know, and that, again, that's one of the first, this, there was some nudity in other movies before this, but right. this was the first one with wide release that really did have nudity in it, stars. certainly that you noticed. Clara Absolutely. Bo was a movie star. And that, that particular scene, I think, was important to it. Again, it tells, it shows Mary basically could have explained what was happening, mm-hmm. but she knew that would get Jack in trouble. So she just, okay, I'll go along with it. Again, all these people made all these sacrifices for Jack, the the immature Jack. You know, David yeah. didn't tell him about that, that it was really he that Sylvia loved because they didn't want to hurt his feelings. Right. And and Mary was willing to get sent home from her, her work in the war to save Jack, he was he was sort of the one that he was privileged in the end, you know, mm-hmm. as this part of the story. And and so, again, this this idea of a, a tonal shift that you mentioned is so right on in the middle of sort of this party and bubbles flying all wrong. All of a sudden it changes mm-hmm. and there's a serious beat where she wants to keep him there because he's important to the war effort. So she goes home. Yeah. Oh, man. And she I loves mean, him. There's even a, a title. There's a title card at one point where. Uh, we see kind of like a, the maelstrom of war re- as represented yes. as like a, ter- a, t- a tornado. And yes. we uh, we literally see the title card start to get yes. sucked into the tornado. Like it, yes. like it's physically there. It's, that, that was one of the things that, that caught me when I did a rewatch of this. I hadn't remembered that, but there was a couple times where they did that. It, they weren't static title cards like we think of this black screen with kind of this border around it and then words on the screen. Right, right. They were very creative use of the title cards even in this where they'd have clouds in the background. There'd be a German war cross. Then there'd be this 
um, like you said, this maelstrom with the moving scene behind it. It was quite incredible, really. There's an extra. You mentioned the the Iron Cross. There's an extraordinary shot, like one of the, uh, kind of the act break where we see a doughboy laying dead on an Iron mm-hmm. Cross, and it's just yeah. that's. I mean, there's uh, that's clearly meant to be sort of abstract because the Iron Cross right. is not literally there. It's not painted no. on the ground, and yet there's this doughboy spread, uh, you know, dead across the, the the Iron Cross again. It's the Wellman. I don't know. Like it's like he took his audience. Uh, he didn't take them for granted, but he also, but he knew that they would follow. They could follow tonally what he was trying to do. I mean, yeah. you have to think movies in 1927. The movies were still what about 15 years old at that point, like as a as an art form. And well, I mean, it, yeah, it depends on how how many people you're seeing it because they probably had right. some back in the 1890s. Sure, but as far sure. as popularity, yeah, right, yeah, they a, weren't that a, old. As a thing you could go and do, you could you go know? see the general public, right, right. And the the idea that he would I mean, of course Cecil B. DeMille was the first guy really to do that, to sort of do cross cutting and close ups mm-hmm. and he was the one that said, you know, hey look, we don't have to just film it like it's a play. You can use all sorts of camera techniques to get things across. Right. I mean, Wellman this feels like a giant leap in that direction. And, and I mean you think about it, Citizen Kane was only fourteen years after this, but I mean this yeah. this has a lot of sophisticated stuff in it that again, if you weren't paying attention and that's We'll get back to that at the end of the show about why I think silent films are perfect for this modern era, oddly enough. But, I mean, so the final third of the film is where David gets shot down, and we uh, they think he's dead. They think he has died, but he survives, and there's a whole sequence where he's behind enemy lines uh, having to escape, and, you know, he's always constantly... Uh, Worrying about that the, these Huns are going to kill him. There's a sequence where he's hiding behind some like a woodpile, and a German finishes a cigarette and throws it over the woodpile. And I love David picks it up and takes a couple of drags off of it before running yeah. off, which is great. Little little for little strength. Little, yeah, yeah. <laughs> little courage. Uh, and he ends up stealing a German plane, uh, and he shoots. Uh, he shoots some German officers in an open air car, which again we see the car crash. We see the actors in it. Like that's yeah. they really did that. They really ca- crashed yeah. that car. In, the, in that well, and in that scene, there was also a scene where, as David was taking off, there's that German plane that kind of crashed, and they drug the guy out of there. Yeah. In that scene, the stunt pilot, um, I, I can't think of his name off the top of my head, Dick Grace, and he he crashed that plane. He broke several bones in his neck. <laughs> oh, they drug him out of there, and. They put him in this cast, and I've seen a photo of him in this neck cast, and they say, you have to wear this cast for a year. Oh, my God. And and so Wellman t- relates this later, and he says, yeah, and about four weeks later, they had this dance hall in the hotel, and, and there was Dick Grace, no cast on, dancing away. He had said, ah, to hell with it, and he took a hammer and broke the cast off and went about his business, and that was it. <laughs> that, that's how these stunt guys in this time, they, these were these were, these tough, were dudes. Passive, tough dudes. Wow. Wellman. Wellman, having been a pilot too, he talked about those stunts and that, like that. He he actually at one point got into a plane, um, put a little bit of petrol in or fuel in it, flew it around, brought it down, crashed it, rolled it, um, undid his harness, got out of the plane, and said, "That's how you do it. Make sure you duck your head uh, when you crash, and the plane will roll by itself. Have at it." Wow. He was. And I was like, "There's not many directors that I don't think to be that hands-on in a crashing a plane in this day and age." No, I'm not. Yeah, I can't really picture <laughs> Steven, Steven Spielberg. You know, <laughs> not, not to be smart, yeah. Steven Spielberg, but insurance would not allow that to happen. <laughs> Wes Anderson out there, you know, putting his life at risk. Yeah. Oh my lord. So David ends up stealing this German plane, and he makes it on his way home. And unfortunately, well, he's trying to make it on his way home, but unfortunately, uh, he gets spotted by Jack who mistakes David for a German fighter, because, of course, why wouldn't he? You know, I mean, and, Jack. You, and, and Jack is waving his arm. Uh, David is waving his arm and like, Jack, don't you know me? Jack, Jack, Jack. And Jack ends up uh, shooting David down. Yeah, you know, David's before be- and before David took off, they had kind of had this little dust up a little bit. Right. You know, they kind of were ticked at each other. So and then when when Jack believed David was dead, that was his thing. He was going to go out and, as he said, I'm going to get some heinies. I'm going to make it square with David. And he was felt really guilty that they had had this fight. So when David's yelling, there was a dialogue card that said, all there is is the Iron Cross. He wasn't looking at the person in the cockpit. Right. All he saw was the Iron Cross. So he's shooting this plane down. And then obviously it turns out to be David who's trying to make his way back to the, um, the lines. 
we knew David was was doomed when he goes off yeah. on that flight without his little lucky bear. He lucky has that charm. little lucky yeah. charm, and he doesn't have it with him, and that's then you know something's bad. But so David gets shot down, and he crashes. And while David's body is inside, and there he's on his final moments, uh, we see Jack's busy tearing the Iron Cross applique off of the plane, which was like I didn't know that was a thing. I thought those were just yeah. painted on, but like it's, actually. That yeah, and that's 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 one of the qualifications for being an ace. Really, that, and that's what that's why that's so important in that scene. And we, we talk about that as you as we continue with it. But there were several qualifications of how you could achieve the the designation of flying ace. You know, one you had to shoot down a plane and get a kill, and it had to be witnessed by two people from your squadron, or it had to be witnessed by military observers. And there's 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 a couple other ones. And one of the ways was that if you went down and you took the iron cross off the plane and brought it back and presented it. That was the qualification that you would get the award as an ace. So that was very important in there. That again, he was thinking of the award and the prize he was going to get for shooting down this German when he went to cut that down. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. I never knew any of that. That's uh, yeah. that's amazing. So yeah, he, he goes in and goes into the house, the wrecked house and he sees that it's his friend and they have a final moment together. And, there's a this whole sequence is is somewhat famous too in that th- these are these two men uh, in each other's arms and uh, of course again David is dying he's dying he's doing his giving his final words to Jack and they are stroking each other's hair and there's a point where they kiss and it's not a romantic kiss uh, at all but it is definitely more demonstrative they are definitely more demonstrative physically than I think a lot of men. Uh, would be comfortable with like even yeah. today you know i mean it's it's startling in that this is the, the these two men are as close as they're ever going to be because this is david's final moments these are the last words he will say the last person he will ever see is his pal jack and they are uh, the the intimacy that they are showing to one another on a physical level is is pretty it's beautiful but it's very startling again it's not something that you would ever see in like an action movie in the 80s tango and cash never did anything like that it would just it would drive audiences bananas and and this really was a turning point this was this was to me this was the point where jack grew up he would right. had, trying to take that iron cross off to win the prize to get the the flying ace another flying ace award and they kind of coax him into coming in to look at this this young flyer who is dying and he he he's care he climbs over the wall and he's holding this this cross in his hand and he looks and sees that it's David immediately the cross falls to the floor and it sh- and they have a scene they, sh- they close up to where his feet walk on the cross and he totally ignores it mm. and he runs right to David and just as what you said this emotional bond that these two characters had and that's where Jack I think finally understood all that other stuff wasn't important it was the relationships and the friendships that were important. And then you said that played out in the intimacy of the scene, which which to, to modernize would be very strange. And like you said, this this non-romantic kiss was on the mouth, too. Mm-hmm. This wasn't a peck on the cheek, French peck on the cheek. This was a, a kiss on the mouth, and they were, they were in each other's arms, and he died in his arms. It was a very kind of a moving, a moving scene from emotional that, like you said, was just very unexpected, but I think was, was done that way to emphasize how important these relationships were among these guys that fought and suffered and experienced so much together. Yeah. Oh, I mean, what's, what, what could be more intimate, uh, than being there for someone in their dying moments? You know, Absolutely. I mean, I don't know what, and, what else, and your what best else? friend and your, your best, best friend, friend on top of who it, yeah. you shot down yeah. trying to avenge him who you thought was dead. I mean, this yeah. guy, the emotions that I'm sure if that really happened in real life would be, just almost unable to be born. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so the film ends with uh, d- with uh, uh, Jack back at home, and he reunites with Mary, and he realizes that he does love her. He allowed her to drive his car, the Shooting Star, which is the name he uses as his flying ace uh, sort of term. But they they end up rec- uh, reuniting uh, at the end of the film. He goes and visits uh, Dave, David's parents to sort of apologize for what what went on there. And uh, we see uh, that Jack has got like some gray hair. Yeah, he's got he's got gray temples now, even though yeah. you know he's way too young to have those Reed Richards yeah. temples. But he's got them because he's aged probably twenty years in the course. This is of the, the effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, you know, it was interesting when they were when Jack comes home. Of course, there's this big parade. He's the big war hero, the flying ace, and it shows him riding in this car. 
and he's kind of they're driving down. There's flowers being thrown on him, and and he's just sort of sitting there, and he looks down, and in his hand is David's bear and David's medals. He's the young Jack would have been. That's all he would have been about was the parade and the award, and all he can think about is his friend that's died. And then they sort of show David's parents looking out the window at this parade, sitting there in the quiet, and they shut the curtain. And then they show Sylvia, who loved David, just swinging on her swing, not paying any attention to the parade. And again, the idea being they are suffering and they have no interest in celebrating Jack like the rest of the town is. And then Jack goes back, like you said, and meets with David's parents. And you can tell he's just he feels so guilty. That's all he can think about is his guilt over having lost David. He gets real emotional with with David's mother. Yeah, it's like I said, it's it's an amazing journey that you go on with these guys and it and the two and a half hours it really works for the film because it, it feels complete it feels like you're following these guys from sort of callow youth to the sort of grim ending and and uh, we're good we follow the other characters too it, it's just in a it's it's really every bit as good as its reputation would suggest and again we talk about that it was a huge hit it was a monster hit it went on to win best picture the very first very first winner of the category of best picture uh, it was the only silent film to do so until uh, the artist, uh, you know, almost a hundred years, not a hundred, like 80 years later, although you could maybe argue the artist isn't really a silent film because it cheats a little bit here and there. Yeah. And, 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 20, and 1927 was when the jazz singer also came out. So that was the first of the talkies. So there was already starting to be a transition. Right. To, to talking pictures at that time. Uh, amazingly, this film was lost until 1992, yes. which is yep. uh, you would think a movie that won Best Picture that Paramount would would have uh, you know made that a concern, but I guess they figured out ah, silent films nobody really cares. But it was found, it was rediscovered in 1992, given a, a new release. Skywalker Sound uh, did the redid all the sound effects, and boy, this is a beautiful look. The print I saw. It's not a print, obviously. It was a digital version. But nevertheless, the version I saw yeah. is breathtakingly clear. Yeah. I mean, I don't know how a film uh, almost 100 years old now looks this crisp. I've seen films from the 90s who don't look this good. Yeah, and thinking, like you said, with the restoration process, those things were filmed on those nitrate-based films, yeah. which bro- broke down and spontaneously combusted. That's why so <laughs> many of them are lost. They said they believe that up to 70% of the films from the silent era are lost films. Yep. And this one, they when they found it, I think, and I don't know if you read the same thing. I've, I've seen a couple different things. I'm not sure, that, but they found a copy somewhere in France. They had found one in some film archive, probably when they sent it over there to be viewed, and they were able to find it, and then they put, then they made a transfer to a different type of film, and they would have had to restore it. So just like you said, over a film that old on what the original print would have been like, um, and there was also a copy maybe in Paramount's archives, like an old negative or something to a, a spare negative, mm. but to restore it to the clarity that they had and, and to recreate some of the pioneering visual effects where they had painted in certain scenes, painted frame by frame, orange flames coming down on right, flames. With the guns fire or whatever. And, with or the guns flames, firing. Yeah, yeah. and again, one of the pioneering visual effects were in this movie with respect to that. These movies, people think of them as black and white. They're not color, but they, but they do have sort of a tint to them. They, they tinted a lot of these. They weren't pure black and white. They were sort of a warmer tonal. Right kind of a look to it. I, it's hard to explain without really seeing it, almost somewhere like a sepia or mm-hmm. or something along those lines. Um, but yeah, but the clarity, I have a, I actually have a DVD copy that I, I got really cheap, actually. Um, and it, the clarity is amazing. And I was interested in what you said about the two and a half hour time frame. I've heard you many times talk about sort of that line between if it's so long, is it, it's too long, but go longer and it's it's good again. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and and I was thinking with this, the original version as released in this movie was an hour and eleven, or excuse me, a hundred and eleven minutes, and the restored version is a hundred forty four minutes. Wow. And I was curious what what stuff wasn't in the original. Yeah. <laughs> what, what stuff did they leave out? Because like you said, well, other than a couple spots where I felt, oh, maybe they could have edited a little bit this down the length of stuff, but it was a fast hundred forty four minutes. Really, it went by quickly considering there's no dialogue to move things along or anything like that yeah it's i'm just utterly was utterly captivated by it and uh said it was william wellman called it his favorite film mm-hmm. uh, and this Best is a guy that, done. this is a guy that went on to do a lot of great movies he directed a public enemy with james cagney a star is born and i mentioned he did Bo jess with gary cooper so this is not a guy that uh, you know only had one big hit he did a lot he had a great film career 
Um, in terms of the careers for everybody else, uh, none of them really – I mean a lot of silent actors had a tough time transferring yeah. to sound. Ronald Coleman is one of the more famous ones who did really well because when, you know, when people realized he had a voice like this, people were like, oh, my God, this guy's perfect. You know, and He sounds as great right. as he looks. But, I mean, Charles Rogers had a, – a, he was busy, but this was certainly the biggest thing he ever did, and he just continued on and bit parts here and there. Um, Richard Arlen similarly had a kind of medi- – not mediocre. Uh, that's that, that's a pejorative. It had a kind of perfectly fine career, but he was not a big star. Yeah, uh, he was a work, workmanlike career. He workmanlike worked constantly. Career. and uh, I do want to do want to mention his final film is 1976's A Whale of a Tale starring William Shatner, which is something <laughs> I want to track down simply because it's a movie called A Whale of a Tale starring William Shatner. Yeah. Uh, Clara Bow <laughs> packed it in at age 28 famously yep. and she lived to be like 70 but she yeah. got tired of this whole thing and and pa- married a rich guy and just packed it in after the, she had a lot of uh, troubles with mental health afterwards but she was a huge huge star but they look and say god imagine retiring at 28 years old yeah yeah and she and she was she was if you notice the movie posters she was the top bill in this movie right it was not right. richard arlen or buddy rogers it was clara bow she was the most popular box office draw there was at that time there's a great uh, episode well they're all great there's a great episode of mash where uh, hawkeye and <laughs> hawkeye and potter are on the front lines together and uh, they come across they're they're they come across uh, some guys who they're, they're not sure whether they're north korean or chinese or americans and then so they, they they're trying to uh explain to these these shadowy figures their their american bona fides and uh Alan and Hawkeye's like Betty Grable, Marilyn Monroe, and and Potter goes Clara Bow, and Hawkeye turns to Potter and goes Clara Bow, you are old. <laughs> so Clara Bow continued to be famous, and this film, yeah. you know, it had some level of pop culture uh, ubiquity later on. There's apparently a Petticoat Junction episode, yep. all yep. about that the characters go to see Wings in the theater, and they got Richard Arland. And Charles Rogers to be in the episode playing themselves. Yep. So I playing mean, themselves, it, it held it was on something, for a while. It was something along the lines they were supposed to have been there for the premiere of the movie, but they went to New York instead. So on the anniversary, they came back to Petticoat Junction for an anniversary <laughs> showing of the movie or something like that. It they, makes me actually want to see an episode of Petticoat Junction now, just to just to see <laughs> that. But, uh, but the, the thing I, I, I want to kind of wrap up with, and I mentioned this at the top of the show, is that um, I, look, I'm. I, I think I have a fairly decent ability to focus, uh, I, whether it's uh, at work where I can focus on a certain task or a movie. I can watch a movie, but I will admit um, when I watch movies at home, if there's a movie that my interest starts to flag with, I I, I get out my phone. You know, yeah. I get out my phone, and I shouldn't because that's you're you're guaranteeing that the film is not going to get more interesting if you're busy on your phone looking at stuff. Right. And Absolutely. I think if you have a if you have a movie that has sound, you're like, well, as long as I can hear it, I could follow along, which of right. course is not true because right. that's the reason it was released as a movie, not a as movie. an audio, not as a uh, podcast. Right. <laughs> you know, so I will find myself kind of just getting distracted. But with a silent film, you can't do that. You have to watch it because there is no audio for you to cheat with and so you know this film forced me to put my phone on my table away from where i was watching the movie and just sit and focus on this movie and i am so glad i did because i thoroughly enjoyed it and i when i saw that um paramount re-released it in theaters in 2012 i mean I, I can't say I'm sorry that I missed it because I never would have seen it in 2012. I would have been like, I'm not interested in that. You're right. But man, if they released it now, I would absolutely go. So I am. I have to thank you, Scott, for suggesting this movie because this is something I oh. never would have watched, and I'm so glad I did because it's terrific. Yeah, it, like I said, it's one of those movies that that's the same way I got wrapped and happened to be on TV, and I just I loved the movie, and I, I I was I kind of amazed myself that I thought a silent movie, and I really enjoyed it this much. The story, and like you said, you. In spite of yourself, you get wrapped up into it. You think you'd kind of get lost without dialogue to our modern eye. It's just a different, a different type of movie. But I'm I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, yeah, just loved it. And it's it, not to get like too uh, corny, but it's moments like that where I was watching this movie is kind of like almost why I do this show. Because I was like, I, I like talking about movies that I love. I love doing episodes on you know Raiders of the Lost Ark or whatever stuff right. that I love or Blue Blues Brothers. But I love. The, and part of the reason I have guests on 
And the reason I let the guest pick the movie as opposed to me saying, hey, I want to talk about this, you know, let me find somebody, is that I'm, I'm hoping that somebody will suggest something that I haven't seen. And, you know, once in a while somebody suggested something where quietly I'm like, yeah, I'm not watching that. But, <laughs> you know, but, but Wings, this was one of those ones where I was like, I've never seen a – not never seen a silent film, but I've seen very few silent films compared to all other genres. This is I, – I, you know, I'm aware of Wings as that it's among silent films. It's the Citizen Kane of them. You know, it's like The Birth of a Nation. Right. It's one of the big movies. And right. I was like, I should see this movie. For a guy that does a movie podcast, I should have seen Wings. And, again, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. So any of you out there, I know it sounds like it's homework. But if you gave, you can rent it. You can get it on iTunes or rent it at your local library. I, I would say give it a shot because I really think you will get something out of it. It's it's an it's an amazing uh, accomplishment, and all the more so when you realize that it, the movie is uh, uh, you know ninety one years old. <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. And I, you know, I would I would highly recommend. Um, I read a book in this. The book was called The Man and His Wings, William A. Wellman and the Making of the First Best Picture. And it was written by oh, William cool. Wellman Jr., um, the director's son. And I, I had seen the movie a number of times. I read the book, and then I went back and watched it again, and I enjoyed the movie even more, knowing what went on kind of behind the scenes and what you see on film. And, and Rob, I'm sure you can attest to this. There, there's so much depth in that old Hollywood and how productions oh, happened and what, I, you know, my eyes were opened in a lot of ways. And again, sort of this, this by the seat of your pants, they did so much stuff and the way these guys acted. Um, I, I do want to give you one little anecdote because Wellman himself is this just incredible character. I could, I, we could probably spend an hour in a podcast if you read the book and I read the book and talking about Wellman himself. But but here's the here's an example of an anecdote in that book that talks about Wellman how he got into movies. He had been a World War One flying ace. He came back. Um, he was sent to San Diego to be a flight instructor. So he was working in San Diego. He, by the time he was thirty, he'd been a professional athlete. I mean, he'd been all these different things. Well, as a professional hockey player, um, Douglas Fairbanks Sr. had seen him play and was an admirer and wrote him a letter and said, if you ever want a job out in Hollywood, let me know. So after he gets back from the war, he's this hero. Fairbanks writes him again and says, you know, I see you're a war hero now. If you ever want a job in Hollywood, let me know. So he so gets, Wellman comes back, gets sent out to San Diego. He's, he's training pilots while the war ends. And he thinks, you know, what, what am I going to do with myself now? I don't have a job. The war is over, which is not a bad thing, but I don't have a job. So he says, you know what? Wait a minute. Fairbanks wrote me that letter. He digs out of his duffel bag, sees this letter. So he goes out, puts on his uniform, jumps in his plane, takes off from San Diego and heads for Los Angeles. On that particular day, Douglas Fairbanks was having a party um, at his house. He had a polo field out on his party. Guests included Charlie Chaplin, D.W. Griffith, Buster Keaton, Will Rogers, wow. Rudolph Valentino, America's Sweetheart, Mary Pickford was there, was, was actually in a relationship with Fairbanks, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, these, these people at this party, this plane is coming up. And all of a sudden, this plane starts flying low, and the people start, they don't know what's going on. All of a sudden, they're scared. They're running for cover. Wellman does some aerial acrobatics <laughs> over this party. <laughs> He comes down, he lands his plane on one side of the polo field, oh my Lord. jumps out, jumps out of the plane, walks up, up to Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford are standing there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read for you, hear what he says. So Wellman says, remember me, Mr. Fairbanks? You said if I ever came to Hollywood to look you up. Fairbanks says, Mary, I'd like you to meet Wild Bill Wellman. He's a hell of a hockey player and a war hero. They shook hands and then he, then he shook hands with Mary. Mary Pickford says, well, we've read about you. You have an unusual way of dropping by. Well, I hope I didn't cause any trouble, Wellman said. Fairbanks says, can you ride a horse? No, but I could. I've ridden everything else. Well, I've got a part for you in my new picture. Come with me. I'll introduce you to the director, Albert Parker. Thanks, Mr. Fairbanks. Fairbanks says, call me Doug. Excuse us, Mary. I'll be right back. And that was how Wellman got into pictures. Man, that's just like, you know, mic drop, you know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And and there's more anecdotes like that about people he met, Teddy Roosevelt, and how he moved up in his movie career through a a second chance meeting with Black Jack Pershing, who was the top general. Good Lord. Um, It involves a whorehouse, stealing pants. I I mean, I, I won't even go there, but... You got to read the book. It's only like 160 pages. It's not a long read, but it's it's great about 
backside of Hollywood at that time and Wellman in particular. I am I am looking at the listing on an Amazon right now, so I'm going to see if my library has it, and if they don't, yeah. I will buy it because yeah, I absolutely. It's I mean, fabulous. I could read whole. I love reading whole books on just one movie. In fact, I mean, not to get too far afield, but I remember like after I a couple of years ago, I discovered White Christmas. I had never seen uh-huh. it, and I fell in love with it. Great. Movie. I was like there must be a book about white Christmas and you know, there isn't. And I'm like, Oh, there's a book about Michael Curtiz. I'm like, okay, that'll maybe yep. they'll get into white Christmas. Maybe there'll be a chapter. There's three paragraphs on white Christmas. I'm like, <laughs> what? No. come on. I could read 400 pages on white Christmas, three paragraphs. It's not going to do it up for me. So yeah, I absolutely want to read uh, this book. This looks, that, that just sounds phenomenal. I love those stories. So that's, it's, great. it's fantastic. And, and, and as Rob and I, you and I share an interest in history, and just the history part of this, too, and, you know, with purging and roles, just the stuff like that, that, that there's just great little ties to the culture of the time yeah. as well, which which I think lends such nuance and depth to what these movies are showing. There's They're always a reflection of the culture of the time, too. Oh, cool stuff, man. Well, again, Scott, thank you so much for coming back on. I always enjoy talking to you. I really look oh, really looking forward to this episode. And after I saw the movie, I was like, this was just terrific. I can't wait to, to discuss this. So uh, it's great having you back on. I'm looking forward to having you on again. And in, in between, since the last time you were on, uh, you are now on Twitter. So why don't you, you, you foolishly are now on Twitter. So why don't you yes. tell people where they can find you on Twitter? Yes, my Twitter handle is at the mind of Scott X. Um, and that's where you'll find me. I have, um, I, I was, I was laughing as I was thinking about this, knowing, oh, I have something now to say where people can find me. And I was thinking about how Shag always kids you about having you own half the Twitter handles <laughs> out there. And I was looking, I thought, I think Rob Kelly is half of my followers as well. So I hope maybe I can, I can get a few new ones, uh, through this and, uh, interact with a few people, but I, I've, I'm actually having quite a bit of fun with it. I, I, uh, I have some ideas, and I've told you before, I have some projects that I'm working on. It's just a matter of when I can really find time to devote some things to them. So hopefully there will be more um, to talk about a little bit later on. Um, but Twitter, Twitter's the start here, so we'll see where that goes. And I, and I look forward to – I have a couple other um, tentatively scheduled podcast appearances here on the Excellent Fire and Water Podcast Network on some different shows that we have tentatively – um, we're going to be doing in the future here oh, so with a couple great. of different cool. shows and a couple of different hosts. So All I'm right. really looking forward to those as well. Twitter can be a lot of fun if you know how to use the mute function. So uh, <laughs> but anyway, I look forward to those episodes. And again, thanks, everybody, for listening. Go go check out Wings, really. I, I, I mean, I, I tend to recommend almost all the movies we talk about because I, I choose to pick out movies that are I'm positive on. But this thing is is, is really a very interesting and, and uh, it's just like early blockbuster filmmaking. You know, back when this, this is what a movie blockbuster looked like in 1927. Pretty, pretty startling stuff. So anyway, thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. Um, um, go on Twitter, as we just talked about, where you can go to uh, at Film and Water Pod, where we talk about movies and stuff. And all the back episodes of the show are available on the website, filmandwaterpodcast.com. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And until next week, that was me doing a title card version of uh, That's a Wrap. You have to and just imagine me, it in your mind. And then I'll throw one in, too, that was used in the movie. C'est la guerre. <laughs> And I yelled, come in, and then came Coop. And he called me Mr. Wellman. I was 29 years old. And he said, Mr. Wellman, I, uh, you know, I, I, couldn't I do that scene over again? I said, look, Coop, you're the only one who could get away with this in the whole troop. I tell everybody else to go to hell. But you must remember this. I'm going to give you a little lecture. I know my job. I'm your mirror, you, the actor. You don't know what you're doing. I do. I see it. I'm your mirror. I know it was good. It was great, or I wouldn't have printed it. But just because I'm interested, I'm curious, because of you, he was getting a little scared. I said, tell me why you didn't like it. He said, well, in the middle of the scene, I picked my nose. I said, listen, you son of a bitch, you keep right on picking your nose, and you'll pick your nose into a fortune. Number four, film director. Any kind except German or silent.